Welcome to the Living Social Justice Podcast, an initiative of Common Ground Church and Common Good, where we explore our lifestyle response to topics of social justice. Our hope is that a growing number of Christ followers begin to individually and collectively live out justice, creating a groundswell of positive change in our society. Welcome to another episode of our Living Social Justice Stories series. This series is about telling the seemingly simple stories of men and women who through their faith in Jesus came to notice an issue, sometimes of poverty, sometimes an injustice, but to the point that they decided to do something about it. So today I have Pete and Sarah Portal with me. Guys, welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Hi. <laughs> um, so Pete and Sarah are not um, part of our Common Ground congregations, and yet your life and your ministry have seriously impacted so many of our lives and our journey. So um, just so lovely to actually meet you face to face. And um, I feel like I, I've met you before just from your videos and reading um, your story and hearing even about your story through other common grounders. So just want to right up front say thank you for who you are and what you do and for your response to Christ and what that means for our city. So maybe just to start, Pete, you're not from Cape Town. So, yep. No, no, I'm from London originally. Okay. So maybe just start with that. How did you end up here married to a Cape Townian? I was a student at Edinburgh University and a friend of mine asked me one day, rather out of the blue, did I want to come to Cape Town on a short-term mission trip? Um, at which stage in my life I had no interest or, or actually no knowledge in Cape Town. Uh, in, in South Africa at all, really, um, and just gave him an outright no. Um, and then he, he did what all good Christians do and said, well, when you at least pray about it. Um, and so I thought, I have to pray about it now. That's, that's the Christian trump card, isn't it? You can't say no to that. Prayed about it, um, and nothing particular, you know, no light, uh, lightning or thunder or anything like that. But um, I was due to get a shoulder operation um, for an old rugby, rugby injury, and um, that was smack bang in the middle of the proposed dates for this mission trip. Um, showed him that, said, I think God's answered. He said, um, why don't you phone the shoulder consultant? And so I, I did, and said, is there any, any possibility of changing an operation date? They said, no, you, you know, it's an eight-month eight, eight waiting list for this. And then the, the secretary of the consultant said, why? And I said, well, I want to go on this mission trip or I'm interested in going on a mission trip and she said oh like a Christian mission trip I said yeah she said oh, I'm a Christian where to and I said South Africa she said I'm, I'm from South Africa whereabouts and I said a town called Paul outside Cape Town and she said oh I'm from Paul you I think hey. I think God wants you to go to South Africa <laughs> so I thought, oh shoot right now I, I you know that's that is the answer I wasn't looking for got on a plane and for six weeks as a student back in 2007 stayed in Bontiaville um, where we met uh, local youth and we were working in Drakenstein Prison in Pearl and I had looked on the internet about uh, South Africa and Cape Town and seen the beautiful beaches and the vineyards and the mountains and the oceans and the penguins and all the, re all the rest of the things that pop up the moment you Google Cape Town and had no preparation whatsoever for oh, the lived reality of wow. what we would experience in Bontival. Um So that's originally how I came to Cape Town. Six weeks of basically crying like a baby over the city, meeting drug addicts, getting mugged, hearing gunshots and all the rest of it, living on the Cape Flats um, as British sh so, uh, short-term 
mission people. Um, I went back to London and just realized that God had deposited something in my heart for uh, addicted young people um, in the Cape Flats. So in 2009, I came back and a year later, Sarah and I met. Wow. Sarah, do you want to tell us the story from your side? And how just how you got involved, how? Well, so I got involved in Manenberg through Pete. Um, I am from Cape Town. I grew up in Bergfleet. Um, Actually went to church with some people when we were kids um, that are at Common Ground now, which is kind of fun. Um, And when I was in high school, I just... I, well, probably before that, my mom raised me as a Christian. Um, I didn't grow up with my dad present. So my mom, um, from when I was a kid, I knew that my my dad, dad was Jesus in heaven. And um, she just raised me with quite a probably like high consciousness of um, injustice and equality and some of the racial history of South Africa. And so as a teenager, um, I decided already at the age of 16 that I would like to move to Central Africa and work in reintegrating and rehabilitating child soldiers. And so then when I met Pete at a party one night, we bonded over gangsters and child soldiers and (laughs) the church's response to those things. And he said, well, um, you know, you're going to go to Congo in probably a couple of years. There's kids running around shooting each other in Manenberg. Why don't you come? I think you'll like them. (laughs) And so I did and um, obviously fell in love with the people of Manenberg and with these young guys um, who were just broken and wanted to be part of their walk with Jesus. And so that's kind of the short version of how I landed up in Manenberg and working there. And obviously then we got married. Right. So, yeah. So now we live there together. So when did that start? When did you first move into Manenberg with a sense of something of our future is here something of our day-to-day lives is going to be based here when did Mm. well so we moved in together in 2014 but pete had been living there already in 2010 so i might let him tell that story yeah so my involvement in manenberg came from meeting people at the warehouse um, and they had a program then called fusion that was working with high-risk youth in manenberg and I got involved with them and we just prayer walked uh, for, you know, the whole first year of really being in in Cape Town uh, for me. We prayer walked around the community and just met people and prayed for people on the streets and began to listen to the voice of God and what he saw where we saw graffiti or rubbish or brokenness or addiction or poverty and what the promise of the kingdom looks like breaking mm. forth in a place like that. So maybe just to interrupt you there, just from your website, I love this. It was under your um, our story, and it was exactly what you've just said. It says um, it was always about prayer, meeting God on the streets, in homes, for the community. It began with two friends walking and praying. As they prayed, they asked God to send the laborers for the harvest in Manenberg. People started to arrive and rise up locally, and prayer on the streets became prayer with people introducing young men and women caught in drugs and gangs to the love of Jesus. I love that. It's just a beautiful description of that story and particularly how it started with prayer. I know a lot of what our team is doing is focused on discipleship, but particularly trying to help individuals respond um, in in their lifestyle response. And often the stumbling block or the the big barrier is 
it's not that they don't notice. It's not that people can't notice the injustices around them. They're just so overwhelming or they've just been around for so long that we've got this kind of normal life that doesn't need to engage with those injustices. And so this big kind of question is, well, where do I start? What do I do first? Okay, okay I know that that's wrong and I know that something's got to change, but what does that mean for me and what do I do first? And I love that sense of starting in prayer. Do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a very pragmatic thing as well as a spiritual thing that becoming known in the community, knowing others, picking up um, Afrikaans phrases, learning the whereabouts of different gang territories and all that sort of thing. But as we pray, God begins to speak to us about people. He begins to speak of the prophetic promise in each person who whatever they might look like in front of you physically is created in the image of God in the same way that you are. Mm. So it's really, I would say it's about choosing people rather than issues. Mm. If we choose issues, we'll become politicized or activists or, um, you know, those people who bang on about issues. I think if we choose people, the issues will begin to choose themselves based on relationship rather than theory um, or views or opinions. And, Equally, relationship, um, if it's true relationship, is reciprocal. Mm. So reciprocity in relationship in those early days was that I needed uh, local relationships in Manenberg just in order to walk around. You know, I was dependent, I was needy towards locals rather than being someone walking into Manenberg saying, guys, I've got a solution to your problem. So it it, it shifts the whole dynamic. um, And praying with your eyes open in places uh, rather than with your eyes closed in a room, I think um, adds a powerful dynamic to the nature of prayers prayed. Okay. So then another thing I saw on your website was just around the values that you've based this ministry and your lives on. The four values that you've listed there are family, the presence of God, justice, and local community. So maybe off the back of what you've just said, what got you to choose those four values? Why, why those four? Well, I think you, you choose your values as a what are we already doing as opposed to uh, what, what would sound good. You know? so, <laughs> so we realized years ago that actually we had young uh, addicts uh, living in uh, many of our homes. Uh, we would worship together, we'd break bread together. If someone was struggling financially, we would share. Um, we would lend cars or whatever, you know, and we began to spend so much time with each other, doing life together with the marginalized at the center of this project that we began to realize this isn't a project, this is a church is community. Mm-hmm. So family right at the heart of it is because that's what we kind of stumbled upon as the generative way of incarnating the kingdom in a place where division reigns so that was an obvious one and um yeah the church is nothing if not family Mm. um the other ones the presence of god is a value of the supernatural um i i heard someone say once you never graduate beyond the presence of god it's never a project or as numbers or success on the outside beyond the the way someone put it was a daily personal Pentecost that we need before we leave the house in order to have the presence of God burning in us uh, 
as an awareness for what he sees and rather than what we see. So the presence brings healing. The presence uh, brings an anointing. The presence brings uh, miracles to help people painlessly withdraw off heroin, for example. Um, that's not a clever theory. That's the anointing of the Holy Spirit to heal people. So without the presence, we're, we're fish food. We're, yeah. yeah. So Sarah, maybe you can speak to, since you've been living there, what are some of the things that you've seen God do working off those values what what are the stories that you can the, the, the testimonies that you can share that speak to what God has done gosh there's so many I kind of <laughs> need to think about it um I think so we've seen we've seen like supernatural supernatural miracles we've seen guys who are going through really brutal cold turkey I don't know I mean not everyone's familiar with what happens but it's it's really brutal there's a lot of body fluids there's a lot of shaking um it's it's really brutal i mean there's been ca- times when i've literally thought we need to take someone to the hospital because they've mm-hmm. been so sick and they often run away and every now and again we see this crazy beautiful miracle where god delivers them of their pain um miraculously and they're they stay and they're able to walk it out but what we have learned over the last four years is that um in the immediate deliverance one can also get sort of tricked into thinking, therefore I'm fixed or healed. Mm. And actually the walk of recovery for everybody, not just addicts, all of us, you know, like we live in a broken world. So Mm. all of us are living in some form of recovery from trauma or just the harshness of of life. Um, And that's a lifelong walk. And so I think like we see these beautiful miracles or people getting healed, like of silly things. Like now and again, you see someone like healed of a headache or just these small little things or guys who run away and um, feeling shame and all terrible and they ask God sort of in a little cry, they say, Lord, I just want to see Pete or I just want to see Sarah one more time and the next thing we walk through the door because God's told us to go after them. And these like these little beautiful moments of sort of like the supernatural, but with that is the lifelong walk of family in a way that like the presence of God is outside of our power and it's often immediate stuff. But the way in which we hold the presence of God is through the permanent, consistent, everydayness of family. And so for one of us, like some of the most supernatural stuff we see isn't necessarily the like, you know, the physical healings are amazing because it's outside of our power and it's wonderful. But we've also come to understand that when someone learns to love, that's also a supernatural thing. And often for me, that's some of the most hearts. Uh, shaking up stuff is when you see a guy who's been living with you for six months offer to share his cool drink for the first time because he's had such an addict mindset for all that time that he like won't share anything and he's like terrified of losing of like not having enough and in the moment that they start to share you realize that there's this beautiful thing Jesus has done where they're starting to know that there's enough there's enough love that they're safe and they're able to share and so um I think for me in some of those like specific stories it's it's more actually these moments when these guys just realize they're loved or when they land up in hospital with a knife in their face because they've you know like something's happened they call us because they know that we'll come in a way that like some of them have really supportive beautiful families but they've caused so much pain through their addiction or whatever and the families have either given up or just were never there in the beginning 
And as these guys start to understand that, that they are loved, and actually often they have to see it in people before they're able to receive it from God because it's too abstract. When you tell one of these boys, God's your father, he loves you. They're like, what does that mean? Yes. For me, my father's in jail and he abused my mom. Like that's not a, a character that I can identify with. And so through the family and the presence of us being there, they learn like what love looks like and then they're able to read the bible and go oh that's what it means when it says you're my son in whom i'm well pleased because okay. i've seen you do that to me it's actually modeled yeah to them in, yeah in daily yeah so i'm trying to think of like specific stories but i can't really other than well i think the other miracle is um that god is creating family out of a bunch of strangers so moving to manenberg for me has been uh, the most life-changing thing he could have called me to do and is his one of his greatest gifts to me is learning about the nature of our faith and of Jesus through the eyes of unchurched, traumatized, violent addicts. And you begin to read the gospel stories in totally different ways. You begin to wonder about the loan sharks or the tax collectors or the gang leaders <laughs> or the um, zealots or whatever in totally different ways when you're going through it together and you realize, man, actually, you know, it was unschooled, ordinary people in Acts 4.13 who changed the world upside down and the difference was they had been with Jesus. Jesus and so it's a wonderful, like I said before, reciprocal dynamic whereby we are learning around our faith where we're going to be discipling people who are actually teaching us brand new things through the newness and freshness of their newfound faith. Okay. So the house that you've set up, the house that you've moved to, is that what is called Crew 62? Yes. Yeah. So that home is called Crew 62 and, and that home is specifically for men? 18 to 25 year old guys right. in gangs and drugs, basically. And how do they have access to that home? If, if someone walked off the street and wanted to come and stay with you, how does that process work? How do you? Well, um, we have an application form and we have a what we call a gateways team who go out and meet with that person yeah. and talk with them and talk through some of our approach and some of their issues and then we pray and we discern, Lord, is this someone uh, you've got for us and us for them? If we sense a green light, then we welcome them into the house probably a month or two after the initial contact. And yeah, that's really all there is to it in one sense. We don't have medical support or, um, you know, if people show various needs, we would take them to specialists mm. but as far as detoxing off drugs is concerned it's family and the presence of god those mm. two values we spoke about that are the the things that we hold on to in helping people get free what's kind of um what's been kind of fun to see over the years is how people find out about us is often they see one of their friends come home for the first three months on a family visit and they're so blown away by the transformation, even in three months, like the physical transformation that they're actually getting food and exercise, but like their demeanor, the, like the temper, um, like having no temper or whatever, like they, they all go, what, what's happened to you? I want what you've got. And then the boys come back to us and say, I've got, oh, I've got a friend who would love to come to you guys. And so that's been really cool. Um, like them coming back with stories of the first time they go home and 
and people crying and stuff. It was really cool. So a lot of guys actually come to us literally through seeing their fr- the testimony of their friends and Beautiful. say, I want that Jesus you speak about. <laughs> Amazing. But Crew 62 is just one of the ministries that you run mm-hmm. out of Tree of Life. So maybe just run us through the different things that are available. Okay, so we've also got a little crash called Scutties, which means little treasures. And that's for um, kids whose moms are in addiction or who okay. are living in unstable home environments, um, just that they would have a safe place to to be during the day while we try and also help mom to get whatever help she needs, um, but also to give them the development building blocks so that they can actually go to school because okay. often these kids can't get into school because drug addict addicted mom is unable to you know, give them those developmental things. And so we've got the little crash. We've got a girl's house opening in hopefully July or August um, called Basilla. And that's for under 18s, 14 to 18 year old girls who are either addicted or in prostitution or in the gang. Um, and we're trying to give them a safe place to just heal and learn and go to school um, and then hopefully if we're able to reunite them with their mom, if we're able to work with the mom. Um, but if not, then foster parent them until they're able wow. to stand on their own feet. How big is your team working with you? Oh, how big is it, Pete? Um, well, we have, um, <laughs> we've just had a, some go and some um, join. So about okay. 15 staff members. We also have a, media company, Mannenberg yes. Media Company, um, that um, is aimed at trying to reframe the narrative told about Mannenberg, um, that there are stories of hope and transformation uh, coming out of the community. It's not just the grisly headlines that people read around gang fights or drugs. Um, and that has been set up as a social enterprise so that um, jobs done for uh, people needing films or whatever done outside of the community um, profit made from that will go into um, the other tree of life ministries the idea being that if we can become sustainable uh, within ourselves and within the uh, skills and talents in our local community then that's a much better funding model than just applications and things like that sure the other social enterprise that we're developing at the moment is Marco Planck, the uh, woodwork collective that young guys in Crew 62 um, learn woodwork skills and are able to make furniture that we then sell, the profits of which go back right. into the running of Crew 62. Okay. So, yeah, we've got a website coming soon and uh, looking for workshop space and tools, more, more and more tools, can't get enough tools. Um, and that is something that somebody who's been in Crew 62 for a year would then be able to receive um, payment for having okay. trained for a year and become an employee of the social enterprise. Great. So that was going to be my next question is what is the trajectory of guys, particularly as part of Crew 62? So say they, they do get off drugs and they do commit to a program of of rehab and, and, and they really want to get their lives back on track and they want to, what is, how do you help them take next steps to reintegrate and what does the future look like for them? Yeah, so the Crew 62 program is, um, we say it's an 18 month program because it's not about chemical dependency on mm. drugs. That's the beginning of the journey. What it's about is learning who God created you to be. And as you grow into your God given identity, 
the addictions and the addictive behaviors and the false beliefs and the lies and the mm. shame gradually fall away and you begin to learn a new way of living. I mean, that's all of our lives in Christ, right? And so after 12 months, um, the woodwork is part of the day-to-day program that the guys learn. They're, the idea is they have learned skills you know, up to a standard they can then uh, be employed doing that. And um, yeah, as we as we grow, so will that grow, and we can add other social enterprises to the mix. Beautiful. Um, and we're currently um, uh, discerning um, around a uh, building opposite Crew 62 that could be a reintegration house, and just trying to discern whether that's the right thing right at the thing moment. The but that step. would be then the next stage. You would be reintegrated back into um, Manenberg um, and society proper um, through various stages. Right. So, okay, you've been at this for a number of years. You've engaged with so many people on so many levels. What would you say for the two of you individually have been the biggest learnings? That's a big question, sorry. Mm, big question. <laughs> As Sarah said, there are so many trying to find like the the biggest ultimately for me Manenberg's greatest gift to me is that it has shown me that we're all in the same boat um, maybe you went through love deficits and neglect or abuse as a child and maybe I had the same in England or whatever or a cultural equivalent and whatever our sin responses to that will be that is living sort of sub kingdom as it was as it were and under Uh, lies and the influence of lies so breaking free from that and breaking free of our past whether we grew up in London or Bergfleet or Manenberg um, manifests in various ways in our adult life and when we realize that um, pain seeks pleasure and in Manenberg what that looks like is my trauma seeks heroin Mm. for me in london it could be a whole bunch of other things you know uh, people pleasing or perfectionism or success orientation or whatever it is it's all brokenness and we are able to heal together on um, a shared journey um, with jesus at the center no matter as i say if you're white or black or colored or english or south african or what because the gospel is that great leveler Mm. I think what I would add is um, two things. One is just the importance of stewarding your own soul and your own heart. I think living in an area where there's quite a high trauma and quite high stress, um, <laughs> whatever's inside of you will be squeezed out really fast. <laughs> and either you can run away and quit or you can choose to fight it and fight or go with it and fight the darkness inside yourself because we all have it. And so I think for me, one of the greatest gifts is, as Pete said, like realizing we're all actually dealing with the same levels of brokenness, but also choosing to to heal and let God heal me in the same way that I tell the boys, you know, like God wants to heal you of your trauma. Will I let him sure. do that for me? Um, and so I think just taking responsibility for your own brokenness and just because you have power through privilege or race or geographical history, whatever it is. Um, it doesn't put you outside of the the brokenness, you know, like we all have it. And so I think um, 
just in order for me to be able to do what I do well, which is basically be a second mom or for some of them a primary mom to the boys, I have to go to some really dark places in my own heart so that what I give to them isn't a replication of my own brokenness, but is part of a healing journey that I can share with them. So I think that's the one thing. The other, um, which seems really obvious, but I didn't fully realize this, this would happen before I moved to the area, which is, I think, when I lived in Bergfleet and even when I was in school and university, like justice for me looked like projects, like I was in United Nations Association for Stellenbosch, which meant projects to Zimbabwe or like projects with street kids or whatever, which is totally great because that's all I had at the time. So I, I did what I could with what I had. But when I moved to Manenberg, like it was no longer like a doing, it became a being because my neighbors were the people that before I would do projects for. And so um, it just, in a weird way, life just became easier to live in a way that like, I believe in the Bible, you know, like looking out for your neighbor and stuff. And that's not to say everyone should move to Manenberg. It's not, it's just um, where you position yourself is where you will be easiest to spend your love and where you spend your love is what you spend your life on. Mm. And so um, like, just for example, there was like some, Rwandans living across the road from us a while ago and their parents like they have four kids um, between five and 16 years old and um, the parents go to work during the day there's no one there to look after them except the oldest kid when they come back from school and there was a gang fight and rarely does gang fight get to our road but this one time it did and they were shooting down our street and so I came home and saw that the parents hadn't come back yet so I just knocked on the door and I said hey guys are you inside and I heard these little voices yes Auntie Sarah so I opened the door and they were all like hiding below the windowsill in the dark completely terrified and so I just went in and I sat with them and waited like through the gang fight and waited for their parents to come home and the parents were just so grateful and thankful that someone had been with them that they then like actually gave us their half of their food for dinner to say thank you, which was really beautiful because at the time, Pete and I had actually come up short that month. And so we actually, the gift of food was really needed and really beautiful. But I was able to be with them mm -hmm. because we lived right next to them. And I think justice for me is actually like being with people in the way that God's presence is with us rather than like doing things for us. It's being with people in the pain, but also with them in the celebration. Mm. And so I think what it's what living there has taught me is just how you position your life and what you do and where you are and where you spend the majority of your time enables you to live out the what I call <laughs> grammatically incorrect, the withness of God. Mm. So you, what you've spoken about now also just picks up on the beauty of community, which I think particularly in privileged parts of our country we actually miss out on because we live su such self-sufficient and um private yeah. lives um particularly as christ followers um do you want to speak to that maybe where you've lived in both camps and what mm -hmm. you've experienced of just the beauty of how god exactly what you've described mm -hmm. he uses community to meet our needs yeah um so i think like, because obviously it's a cultural, a bit of a cultural shock for me, because I grew up in a, with my mom and my brother and like my neighbors whose names I never learned um, <laughs> for like 18 years or whatever. Um, and so there's definitely like, in terms of like privacy and your own time, that's something that has been a cost for me because obviously I live on site with a bunch of drug addicts who knock on the door all the time. 
Um, and so I've had to learn how to set boundaries, but also readjust my lifestyle to what is, you know, like it's a bit of an entitlement actually to have yeah. space and to have time and to be able to decide who can contact you and when. But equally, the amazing, beautiful gifts of being in community is like so much more than the cost of a cultural difference of from what wow. I grew up with. And and even, you know, we've had some real tragedy tragedies in our church. Um, we've had quite a few people lose their lives. And when that happens, like we're just there together. We share food together. We sleep alongside one another. And like people are there and bringing food. And I know that you get that in this more suburban areas where people are living separate. But I'm also aware that there are plenty of people I know who live in more less community oriented spaces and when they're suffering or depressed no one knows Lonely. and they they bear it alone whereas in our church community because we're all with each other all the time no one can go unseen and if they do it's also maybe a bit by choice because they hide themselves but when they do they will still someone will notice Seen. and come <laughs> and so again I think even that the the benefits and the beauty of living in such a integrated community where people are in and out their pockets, each other's pockets the whole time. I think it's just being, being with, I think that's the gospel, you know, like Jesus came to be with us. He sent his Holy spirit to live with us and God created us so we could be with him. And so I think for me, it's just, it helps me understand the gospel so much more living with people that doesn't require effort because you just exist that way. Yes. Beautiful. So maybe just to round this up, um, I'd love you each just thinking about particularly just Christians in Cape Town who might be listening into this. If there was one thing that you could encourage the average Cape Townian Christian to consider doing, consider engaging with, what would that one thing be? I think developing subversive friendships on an equal footing where you're not if you're from the place of privilege or power where you are not a service provider or dispensing things at someone or to someone but a reciprocal friendship that subverts the fact that Cape Town is still so segregated that South Africa is the most economically unequal country on earth that I think is one of the most subversive things we can do and in doing that really our whole story Sarah and my whole story and the tree of life story is that in doing that you find a much greater joy anyway than you ever knew previously so you are part of binding up a broken, unequal, fearful, segregated society and at the same time laying down your rights and privilege and at the same time growing this deep well of joy in the expanded horizon that these subversive friendships are offering you. Mm. And I th I'm going to give you a slightly more airy-fairy answer. Um, <laughs> I think for me, it would be, and I'm actually stealing this off a friend of mine, but like learn the person of Jesus and learn to hear his voice. Because if you are listening like all the time and you have eyes to see the language that Jesus speaks in to you, then you'll see where he's inviting you into spaces, you know, like 
God speaks to me through visions. And like there was a time when we actually had to close Crew 62 for a bit and I had a picture of a mother and a child living there and I didn't know what it meant, but I saw the picture and I just put it in my heart and I was like, okay, God, whatever that means, like I'll leave it there. And then three months later, a, a man knocked on our door and said, this woman and her child need somewhere to stay. You're the only people I could think of. Do you have a room? And we were able to, and I said yes, because God had told me they were coming months before. Um, and it was cool, like she stayed and then she left and it was just for two months. But for her, I think what was even more important than having the roof over her head, it was that God had paved the way so that she was expected and wanted and planned for. Um, and that for me was just an example of like learning how does, what would Jesus, who is the person of Jesus? How would he minister to that woman? And are we listening in our own way? Because I don't think the way he speaks to me is the way that he would speak to everyone else necessarily. But I think that the way in which we respond to some of the pain in our city will be a lot more um, organic if we know who we are, if we know who Jesus is, and if we know that he's speaking to us all the time. Wow. Guys, your story is so inspiring. I just, um, I'd love to just pray for you to end off. Um, cool. Father God, I just want to thank you for men and women like Pete and Sarah. I want to thank you, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you are moving your children around from city to city, positioning them and establishing them in your word and in your presence in a way that they can um, be a city on a hill for you. And I just want to pray for Tree of Life and um everything that this team are putting their hands to lord as they surrender to you every day as they search for you and seek you out won't you presence yourself in that place and won't you do a work in manenberg that puts your glory on display in jesus name amen pete and sarah thank you so much for your time thank you for your story and thanks for having us we think you're awesome <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode subscribe to our channel living social justice on soundcloud you can also find more resources on our website, commongood.org.za, including our justice journey courses, devotional content, and volunteer opportunities. Bye for now.